Magister Dixit. Magister Dixit. Magister Dixit. Magister Dixit. Welcome to Magister Dixit, a podcast that invites you on a journey into realms of expertise, imagination, and occultism. Delve deep into the minds of those that have dedicated their lives to mastering their crafts and how having an esoteric or supernatural influence has shaped that path. In each episode, we will engage with magisters, true masters of their respected fields, as they share their unparalleled insights, unconventional knowledge, and their unique perspectives. Venture into the mystical as we converse with filmmakers, musicians, and renowned authors. Listen to their perspectives on their respected disciplines and how being a practitioner of occultism has influenced their craft. Remember, in the realm of knowledge, Magister Dixit, the master has spoken. Peter Lavenda is an American author known for his in-depth exploration of the connections between the Nazi regime and occultism. With a background in religious studies and Asian studies, Lavenda has delved into the intricate relationships between esoteric tradition, conspiracy theories, and historical events. His most prominent works include Unholy Alliance, A History of Nazi Involvement with the Occult, and The Secret Temple, Masons, Mysteries, and the Founding of America. These books shed light on the occult influences that played a role in shaping the Nazi ideology and founding of the United States, respectively. While Lavenda's writings have sparked discussion and debates, his contributions to the television documentaries and lectures have allowed him to share his knowledge with a wider audience. His multidisciplinary approach, blending academic insights with his interest in the occult and history, has made him a significant figure in the field of occult studies and esoteric history. Let's welcome Peter to the show. Peter, let me first uh, welcome you to Magister Dixit. And uh, to kind of get into a little bit of your background and influences, could you tell me a little about your educational and professional background and how that led to you to end up working in occult history and esoteric traditions? Well, it's a bit complicated because um, my educational background stopped in 1968 when I graduated uh, Christopher Columbus High School in the Bronx, a year before David Berkowitz uh, enlisted, enrolled in the same school, oddly uh, enough. The son of um, Sam. The son of Sam. And I didn't really go back to formal education until I was in my 50s when I got my uh, master's, my MA in religious studies uh, with a an associated uh, degree in Asian studies. Um, between that period from 1968 till about 2006, 2007, most of my education was, I was an autodidact, as they say. I uh, basically taught myself whatever I needed to know. Um, I had been a prolific reader when I was a child. I read everything uh, compulsively, probably. Um, and around the time of puberty, I guess, 13, 14 years old, I started to become very involved in um, esoterica. And I, I was, uh, I started signing away, sending away for everything in the back pages of Fate magazine. 
which in those days was a small digest kind of size magazine. And in the back, they had all these ads for free stuff, send away for this, send away for that. And I would just send away for everything. I still have some of that stuff, you know, postmarked like 1965, you know, and everything from like meditation techniques to um, how to conduct a seance. Would, would some of this stuff been like uh, Edgar Casey stuff from? Uh... I mean, I was familiar at the time with the name. Edgar Casey was a name to conjure with in those days. No pun intended, I guess. <laughs> um, so we did, you know, we did Edgar Casey. When I was at, we moved, uh, I lived in New Hampshire for about two years as a child growing up from 63 to 65. And then we moved back to uh, the Bronx around the end of 65 into 66. And uh, I joined the American Society for Psychical Research as a teenager. I just joined it. Uh, this was the time when Carlos Osis was the, the president of, of, the, of the organization. He had dropped acid at one point, and that's the only lecture I attended of his because I lived in the Bronx and the society was down in Manhattan. It was a big deal for a teenager to make that trip in those days. So I was down there and, uh, you know, listening to this guy talk about how he dropped acid and saw visions and stuff. I'm thinking, this is an older gentleman, you know, a, a PhD, he was Dr. Carlos Osis. And I just thought it was phenomenal stuff. I didn't know what I was listening to. I wanted to hear about ghosts and demons and stuff. Instead, I heard about a guy tripping acid. Um, but, you know, it was the 60s. What can I tell you? So uh, that kind of background that I had, I would send away for, for things. Um, I read Waite's book on ceremonial magic. That was probably my introduction. The, the, black, book, the uh, black book of uh, yeah. ceremonial magic? Right. It had all kinds of different titles, depending what publisher was putting it out. In those days, it was University Press. Uh, I don't think they're around anymore, but they were they were publishing all this stuff then. So I had that book and I had the uh, the uh, Picture Museum of Sorcery, Alchemy, Magic and Alchemy, uh, which was another one. And then there was the Encyclopedia of Occultism, I think, by Lewis Spence. So those three things were confusing the hell out of me. Uh, and then I managed to see another ad in the back pages of this time, the New York Times for Samuel Weiser's bookstore in Manhattan. And it said Orientalia, which is a great name for anything, Orientalia. Um, so and, you know, books on the occult. And I said, OK, I'm going to go down when I can gird my loins from the Bronx and go down to 14th Street, Union Square and and check out Weiser's bookstore. And so I did that. And that was really an introduction because they had. It was all secondhand books on the first floor, but the but the basement floor downstairs was all occultism and orientalia. And there were couches down there and there were strange people hanging out. And it was just great, you know. And that's when I first picked up a copy of the old castle edition of Magic and Theory and Practice. And that blew my mind. That was Alistair Crowley. And his approach to the whole subject was was so refreshing, so like a like a more more like a being drowned in, in a tub of cold water, I think. And you just suddenly had your eyes open and you're extremely alert to what he's saying and you understand none of it. All those references to the Golden Dawn rituals and to this, the Book of the Law, all these things, I had no idea what he was talking about. But it still spoke to you. Oh, it did. I mean, it was like there's a, there's a, a realistic reason behind magic. Magic makes sense. There's a way to do it correctly. And this, this, satisfied me enormously because I'm juggling with going to high school, trying to get an academic diploma so that I can go into college, which I never did until much later. But anyway, I'm struggling with the science courses and the math courses. And, you know, at the, at the same time, I'm conducting seances 
in my house in the in my apartment in the Bronx with my mother and my my siblings. And we're getting paranormal phenomenon. We're getting the table tipping. We're getting the knocks and all of these things. And that should not exist, right? I couldn't go into back to high school the next day after a night of that and tell my science teacher what happened. It's not going to happen, right? They'll think I was insane or a lunatic. It's not the right worldview. It just wouldn't fit. Well, that's very interesting that uh, you had your siblings and your parents involved in that process. Because I was going to ask you, were you kind of an island to yourself, a kid in the Bronx, you know, a teenager that's in that's uh, taking a fancy to occultism? What did like what did your neighborhood friends think and what did your family think? Uh, see, you read all well, these books. I was pretty isolated. Um, they, they call the kind of person I was in high school a ghost. I mean, I was there, but no one really knew that I was there. So I did not develop a wide base of friends, but I did have two in particular, and they were very amenable to this kind of, of study. But um, basically, I was the editor for three years of the school literary arts magazine. I was an honor student in English, an honor student in history. Uh, I was doing very well in French. I took several years of French, enough so that I could converse and write letters and things. Uh, read read Parimash and you know the magazines and all that stuff. So I was getting into all this, you know, cultural stuff and 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 history. I was in, embedded in it. Um, but for the most part, at home, you know, in the Bronx, we were kind of isolated. My mother was was a little strange. Um, that's a whole other whole other story. Uh, so she was a little bizarre. She was weird. She had neuroses that you would not believe. And the whole seance thing was probably a bad idea uh, when it came down to it because she began to rely upon the seances more than a person really should, more than I did, certainly. Uh, and the Ouija board and all that kind of stuff. Were they immigrants to New York, Peter? Or? Oh, no. My mother was a native New Yorker, uh, as, I, as I am. Uh, my siblings were born in Indiana, where my father is from. My father has his own history. Uh, my father was a, um, a, uh, a segregationist in 1945. He led something called the Gary, Indiana School Strike, which was a, a strike to, to stop busing uh, black students into white schools. And he became famous, momentarily famous for that, so famous that um, Frank Sinatra heard about the school strike and all the, the potential for violence that was there. Sinatra actually flew to Gary, Indiana to try to talk my father out of the strike, right? So there was this moment when my father and Sinatra were making headlines in the local newspapers. Everyone's forgotten about that by now. But if you were to look in histories of that period, you will find my father prominently mentioned. And the FBI had a file on Sinatra from those days, and my father's mentioned in the FBI files. Uh, so all of that's openly, readily available. Uh, if you look for Lavendas, my last name, my family name, I'm related to all of them. I mean, it's a very small family. Uh, my grandparents emigrated from uh, Slovakia, which was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, so my father's parents came from there uh, with the name Lavenda, which is a strange name even in that part of the world. And uh, there's just a handful of us in, in the United States, and we're all pretty much relatives of each other. So he was... He wanted to be an actor. He went to the Academy in New York City, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. He was in the same class as Jack Palance, Grace Kelly, that sort of thing. Jack Palance, then, nice. Yeah, Jack Palance. He, he actually appeared on Broadway with Palance. Uh, I think it was a play called The Silver Tassie, 
I don't know very much about it, but I still have the, the, uh, the, the playbill somewhere. So there was this momentary moment when he was kind of famous. And he married my mother at about that time, who was, like I say, a native New Yorker. I think he met her in a coffee shop. She was working the cashier or something, cash register. Uh, they married, and uh, I came around uh, 10 months later. Uh, 10, 11 months later, I showed up. And everything kind of changed. We moved from New York to Indiana, then to Illinois. I lived in Chicago for a while. Then to New Hampshire, to a very spooky place in New Hampshire. My parents were insane. And I can go into detail on that. And then from New Hampshire back to the Bronx, and then me winding up at Columbus High School. So all of this was really a very good background because I was exposed to so many different things. And my father's parents were Slovaks. They were very devout Catholics of the type where on Sunday you had to go to the very first mass. If you went to the noon mass, you must be a Protestant, right? <laughs> so you had to show up for the, the 6 a.m. mass. That's the only legitimate mass. And that kind of Catholic, and they were very, very devout and very, very cultural. I mean, I learned about Slovakia from them, the, the dress, the language, the everything. My mother's side was more of a mystery. So uh, my mother's uh, mother's people were all Italians. And, uh, you know, there's a kind of very different kind of Catholicism there than it is from the Slovak side. So there's a different approach to it. It was all the novenas and the prayers and the holding, you know, putting the statues upside down and all kinds of strange oh. stuff coming from a my mother's side. Absolutely. Uh, my mother's side, uh, they're devout Irish Catholics. And okay. yeah. uh, seeing uh, how my grandmother, how how mass integrated into her daily life. I mean, she catch a mass almost every day. Right. Well, my mother never went to mass, but she sent me to Catholic school for five years. Of course. So I was like doing time, you know what I mean? So for five years, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing with the nuns and everything, sadistic nuns and all of this. <laughs> this is all answering your question because this was all part of what was going on in my head. You know, growing up in the Catholic church, in the 1950s during the Cold War was a trip because the Catholic Church was intertwined with ideas of being anti-communist. Communists were evil. They were Satan worshipers. They were of the devil. Uh, then we had the air raid sirens. You know, every week they tested the sirens. We had to do the whole test of putting your hands behind your neck and kissing your ass goodbye. You know? mm -hmm. So that thing we did every week, it was just part of the, the fear that was being drummed into us. That at any moment, the satanic forces would come and obliterate us. And the only thing standing between us and them were, you know, was the Pope maybe, was was praying, was novenas, was, you know, trying to convert the Russians to Christianity. I, I like so, how the air raids, and they, they still even had those when I was a kid in uh, elementary school in the 70s. And they would either have you get in a fetal position in the hallway or you would climb under your desk. And I remember thinking, even then as a child, knowing the type yeah. of devastation that nuclear disaster causes, I was thinking like, what is this going to do? Or, you know, how is this going to exactly. <laughs> save anybody? Right. So that was all part of it. That, that's part of your spiritual education, you know. Now, what yeah. about the historical part of it? Your hmm. uh, almost infatuation with uh, World War II? Well, I grew up, again, in the 50s. So we had a little black and white television with the tubes in the back that we had to keep changing at a drug at a drugstore, you know, very old technology. And it was a very small black and white television. And my mother was obsessed with television. And uh, the, because in those days you had to warm up a TV set, you had to turn the television set on and slowly it would come to life. Right. 
So if we didn't have that on, when my mother woke up, she was very irate. Like, why isn't the television on, you know? So the television had to be on. And all we could see, generally speaking, what she watched until two o'clock or whenever they they turned off the TVs. Remember, they used to shut down all the stations. Yeah, they'd have a sign off and play the sign the, off. Uh, uh, what is it like the Thermonet and and the, yeah. they play, have the American flag and play God bless America or something exactly. and do their yeah. sign off. Yep, we had that. And just before that, we had a string of black and white film. Maybe they were color movies. In those days, I didn't know. We only had a black and white set. So we had all these films and they were all new World War II. They were all propaganda films from the war, right? Of course, Casablanca, which is, you know, one of my favorite films still of all time. But then you had Passage to Marseille. You had a whole bunch of films with Peter Lorre and, and Bogart and all these guys, you know. And it was all World War II, obviously. It was all about that. Very little about the Japanese. We mostly focused on the Nazis. And, um, and it, it, it instructed me in a, that we had a way of looking at the war where the Americans were really casual about it. The GIs were always messy and sloppy and, you know, they had two or three days growth of beard, but the Nazis were always immaculate. They were always clean and very pressed suits. They smoked cigarettes with a holder. They listened to opera. It's like, what the hell, right? Yeah, the, whole the, idea, regalia, the whole regalia that they're wearing oh, yeah, and everything. Right. And the clicking of the heels and the all of that, you know, and we were like grungy kind of guys. And I began to understand that that was kind of part of the American psyche. I mean, I learned this later. I mean, I understood it later that, you know, we are kind of we have a bias against culture of that in a high culture. Let's put it that way. We, we it seems to be built into us like we're suspicious of it. And that made me become aware that there was a, a cultural element to what our position was regarding, you know, the Nazis and fascism and the Third Reich and all of that. So all of this, the history was part of it. And the swastika was this emblem that didn't make any sense unless it was considered some kind of religious symbol on a par with the cross. Like they had like a really identifiable symbol. What political party has that kind of an identifiable symbol, right? We have donkeys and elephants, right? But those guys had the swastika. I mean, that's so cool. What is that? And eventually you start to pick that apart. You start to learn more about it. And that was from the remnants even in uh, the esoteric beliefs of the World War II German soldiers. Didn't a lot of them, uh, they would uh, write that on the trucks and on their helmets. I think I saw a picture of uh, Goering once in World War I, and he had one. It was backwards because they, were, they right. would go either way with it at that time. Sure. The, uh, they had, you know, militias that were set up after World War I because Germany lost that, that conflict. Uh, a lot of German soldiers came back from the Russian front with communist and socialist ideas. There was tremendous upheaval, upheaval in Germany. But then there well, was, it was a, the, it was the uh, what did they call it? The stab in the back? I forget. The, the stab in the back. Yeah. Yes. And so the, uh, you had the Stahlhelm, the steel helmet brigades. You had all the Fry Corps, the Freedom um, Corps, right? The Free Corps. And these were all pro, you know, right wing guys, extreme right wing, anti-communist. And they painted swastikas on their helmets. If you read, uh, John Tolan's history of World War II, you'll come across um, a long discussion about Hitler in the trenches. And Hitler in the trenches was writing poetry to the Teutonic deities. You know, this was already part of this idea that what we're, we're being stabbed in the back, not only by the so-called Jewish banker Masonic thing, but we're also being stabbed in the back by Christianity. 
and there was this movement to kind of purge christianity of its jewish elements so they created a german church ah that was supposed to be a christian church appropriate for germans in which there's no mention of judaism which meant the bible had to be about five pages long i guess i don't know they had to like take everything out that was jewish jesus wasn't jewish jesus was the illegitimate son of a roman centurion and mary who was well, could not have been jewish and so he was you know some sort of an arian uh, i mean the whole thing this is i'm i'm not making this up this is really what they what they talked about so as i'm you know graduating high school and all of this uh I, the seances were going on. I'm trying to extricate myself from the seances because they're draining the energy out of me like crazy. But it's 1968, and I have to face facts about Vietnam and going into the war. And I was all for going to war against the Nazis. There was nothing that I abhorred more were a bunch of you know people with German accents telling me what to do. Um, so I had no problem in fighting Nazis. That was not an issue. And it was no problem going into the military. That was not an issue. But Vietnam was an issue. I was, you know, 16, 17, 18. I'm seeing the newsreels. I'm seeing Walter Cronkite, you know, falling apart at during the Tet Offensive and saying, what, what's going on? Um, that more than anything else put the knife in it to me. I mean, with Walter Cronkite, you trusted implicitly in everything. And he's now questioning, you know, the, the Vietnam War. All of this is happening, and I'm starting the, to... The, the purity of journalism at that time, too. The, you know, the yeah. uh, unbiased look at the facts and right. reporting. Well, it was from Cronkite that I learned that Kennedy had been assassinated. You know, I mean, he was the guy that told us that. And he looked appropriately heartbroken over this, right? And so you, you, you learn to trust Cronkite. And then when Cronkite tells you, we're losing this, this conflict, you know, in Vietnam, and that was as early as January, February 68, then you realize, oh my God, this really, this is not where, where you want to be. So uh, one thing led to another. I've covered it in other places. I'm sure like a lot of your listeners know, but a friend of mine and I in high school, we decided to create our own church uh, in order to get a clergy deferment so we wouldn't have to go to the army. And it, to make a long story short, it kind of worked. Um, and we came under the umbrella of another church, which turned out to have been involved somehow in Jim Garrison's investigation of the Kennedy assassination. It's a long story, and I guess we can cover that at some other point. But this, is, <laughs> this this was just, again, another mind-blowing episode uh, of, of the 60s for me. And uh, But at the same time, forming this church gave me this opportunity to delve more deeply into theurgy and to develop into, you know, religious mysticism, let's say. And we created an Orthodox church, a kind of, Rus a kind of Russian Orthodox church called the Slavonic Orthodox Church, and so I started really studying Slavonic Orthodox literature. I started reading about um, uh, the Jesus Prayer, which is a monastic uh, discipline the Russian Orthodox have, the monks do, where they just re repeat one prayer over and over again constantly until it goes on subconsciously and doesn't stop. So your breath rate, breathing, everything is in sync with this. That's the concept. And that's that's yoga, right? That's pranayama. Yeah, it's like a, a mantra or something. A mantra, exactly. Yeah. So all of this was part of that. And I thought, okay, I'm on the right track. Let me keep following this. But I'm also still looking at the, the stuff at Weiser's, you know, and, and Crowley and the Tao Te Ching became very important to me because that was seemed to be, to say at all, the very first opening lines, the Tao that can be explained is not the Tao. Holy crap, what does that mean? That's cool. That's, it, it resonated with me immediately. So you have that going on, you have the war, you have, you know, uh, all this other stuff going on, the Kennedy stuff, you know, Bobby Kennedy assassinated in 68. 
you know, we're, we're still in high school. We gate crashed that funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral. So I actually touched the, the, the coffin of Bobby Kennedy, which was like the last hope for us. Um, you know, if he had been elected president, maybe things would have been different. So there was a lot. So this combination of religion and the fake churches and Vietnam and the assassinations was all there in 1968. If you grew up in New York City in 1968, it was all there. You know, it was everywhere. There were demonstrations. There were, you know, there were underground newspapers, underground magazines, under everything. I mean, you had it all around you all the time. So I was growing up with that. And I think all of that began to boil and then Watergate, right? So Watergate was in 72. Um, 73, 74, we're learning all about the scandals, all the rest of that. And I was reading, of course, the Village Voice uh, religiously in those days. And um, there was an article by a journalist, I'll never forget him, a guy called Craig Carpell. I've not found him before or since, but he wrote this mini series. I think it was two, uh, two editions of Village Voice. And it was called um, Patriotic Witchcraft. And it tied in really disparate things like Charles Manson, Disneyland, Richard Nixon, Watergate, Vietnam, the CIA, everything in this very short series of two articles. And but somehow it blew my mind, right? It blew my mind that the Manson killings took place on the same day that Nixon uh, resigned from the White House, right? I mean, things like that, you know, just all of that kind of wild stuff was going on. Have you ever uh, read the book? I forget the gentleman that wrote it, but the talk about Manson and how he was part of the MK Ultra program and how they had set that uh, up in uh, Hey Ashbury. They actually had like a, an right. office there where they were dispensing LSD. And... Yeah, I think it was called Chaos, wasn't it? Yes, Chaos. Yes. Right. Yeah, I have yeah. it. Yeah, I've read it. It's, of course, I read it much later. I mean, in sixty, in seventy-two. You know, this was like wild stuff. This was well. It took him forever to finish it, too. I believe, right? It was like yeah. a twenty or thirty year thing in the process, or whatever. Well, like Sinister Forces, it took me about the same time, because Sinister Forces was born out of that, out of that series of two articles, uh, plus the fact that um, Alexander Haig, who was chief of staff for Nixon at the time, said that the eighteen and a half minute Oval Office tape gap was due to Sinister Forces, and that's like wow. What a cool concept, Sinister Forces. And so Sinister Forces, Patriotic Witchcraft, it all came together for me. And I started during Watergate in the 70s, researching what would become my three-volume Sinister Forces, a grimoire of American political witchcraft. And it's all indebted to, to that, to that time, because all of these things were there. And I was desperately trying to make sense of it. And there was no personal computer in those days. There was no internet. There were no cell phones. People don't understand that, but there was a time. When, when people still went to libraries and did research. Right, and I lived in libraries. I lived at the 42nd Street main branch. Uh, that was just essential to my life for years. Well, you grew up in the right location for oh, doing yeah. research. Absolutely. You can do anything in New York where that's concerned. There are so many private libraries as well, institutions, organizations. That, there's Tibet House, you know, which was a great resource when I was writing unholy alliance for instance so that's all there and but there are also newspapers and magazines print media was king and so i had you know access to the new york times to the post to the news but i also had the washington newspapers and um, news magazines i collected everything i clipped articles constantly 
So I had boxes full of this stuff. I still have boxes full of this stuff. Some of it's old and yellowing and falling apart, but it all dates from then, you know. And I cross-reference and I had little index cards, which I still have. And I cross-reference stories and people and stuff. And every time a new, new story would come out about something totally unrelated, it would have the name of somebody that I knew. So I would cross-reference that to the other stories and say, oh my God, these guys are part of the same thing, you know. And how they fit into the... Yeah. Uh, the oh, mosaic yeah. of the tapestry of uh, that time, that, that time in uh, exactly. history. Yes. The context was all important. If you looked at any of these stories in isolation, you didn't get it. But if you had the context, if you had the big picture, the 40,000, the 40,000 foot view. Yeah. But the problem with that is, you know, people think you're insane. And it's like, uh, that scene in True Detective, you know, it's that garage with all the papers and the threads going everywhere and everything linking to everything else. And it's news stories mixed with occult symbols, you know, mixed with scientific data and formulas over here. I mean, you're just going absolutely bonkers with this, but that's what was per percolating at the time. And so then I started traveling and I didn't I didn't finish Sinister Forces until decades later. I was I could not stop researching it. And I began traveling. Uh, I went to Chile famously in 79, uh, researching Colonia Dignidad, which was a Nazi estate in Chile. Uh, and I was apprehended there uh, and then kicked out of the country. They kicked um, you out of the country. Interesting. I was told by the Nazis, the actual World War II Nazis at the colony in Chile, that I was no longer welcome in the country and I had to leave. They told me that I could not stay in the country. These were German immigrants telling me I had to leave, but they were right. Because as I was leaving them and going back to Santiago, uh, the, the army would come on board the bus and make sure I was on the bus and getting all the way to Santiago. They would ask for me by name. I would get to Santiago to my hotel and there's a note saying you're on the next flight. You know, So they kicked me out of the country. Interesting. And, but the, the combination of the the Nazis at the colony plus Pinochet and his regime was absolute. They were all on the same boat. They were all friends. They all shared resources. Yeah, I, I know anytime I've uh, watched any of the Nazi hunter things when they were going down there to uh, kidnap some of these individuals, right. uh, they were absolutely scared to get caught. And what, what would happen to them if, if the Israelis got caught doing this? And, you know. Well, as I found out when I was down in Chile, they were looking. Mossad was down there looking for Walter Rauf. I didn't know this, obviously, but the Germans did. And I think they figured that I must be part of the same operation. Yeah, working for them or just an investigator right. know, looking for leads or something else. Which was pretty funny because I weighed about 125 pounds. As I tell everybody, I was 29 years old. I look geeky. I mean, there was no way I was Mossad. But I mean, maybe, maybe they had guys that look like me. You know, who knows? But, well, that, that's a pretty uh, brave thing for you to do to go down to Chile and brave, actually. Stupid. Well, it's freaking stupid. Well, well, I thought uh, I would do forever. <laughs> yeah, stu stupidly brave. I mean, because uh, you, you didn't have any of that gut instinct telling you, like, Peter, get out of here. What are you doing? No, no, because I don't know. I have this thing, you know, I'm researching this, this, this subject. They have the information I need. They're down there. I'm going to go, you know. And I didn't really quite realize, again, no internet, none of that existed yet. So I'm only going upon whatever I see in the news. I didn't even have TV during the 70s. I didn't own a television set for 10 years. So my only news was from newspapers and from books. And I heard about this place from books. And I said, well, I'm going to go down. 
right? I knew Pinochet had taken over. I knew it was under martial law. But, you know, I'm an American. I'm going to go down there and look at it and just look at it for just enough to say I was there and then turn around and come home. That was my, my game plan. You know, that was it. I had no idea it would turn into what it turned into and would follow me around, you know, forever after that. But it was, you know, this was a great introduction to what I was going to do with the rest of my life because there it is. I saw with my own eyes the, the power these people had. This was Odessa, right? This was an underground Nazi network. As I really learned later, everybody had passed through that colony. I'm talking Hans Ulrich Rudel, the famous Luftwaffe pilot, Otto Skorzeny had been there. Everybody had passed through Colonia Dignidad. I only found that out in the last few years. Uh, so, there, it yeah. was that, I'm sorry, there was a uh, recent series that they had in, uh, about uh, Hitler's escape uh, that was. Hunting uh, Hitler. Yes, yes. Did they tap you for any uh, uh, information? Well, oddly enough, they did not. I think they made one outreach. And I did, you know, respond to them, and I think it's not what they wanted to hear, and they, they, I never heard from them again. Uh, they went to Colonia Dignidad. They did. At first, they started out in that, uh, that really remote, uh, like uh, was right off the coast or whatever, where they had like almost like a makeshift shelter that was built, like almost like a, uh, like a stone and wood uh, structure that was built. Oh, right, and they yeah. found. Uh, like uh, medical supplies and sure. like uh, things right. like that. And it was definitely something there for sure, you know. But when they actually went to the colony, I mm -hmm. saw an interview with the guy who actually went there. He was being interviewed. He was a famous sports personality. I don't remember his name, uh, but he was a young guy. And he's talking about going to the colony, which of course at that time had been sanitized completely. Nothing was left of the original colony except some of the inhabitants, but everything else, the machine guns were gone, you know, and the sarin gas was gone and stuff like that was gone. So they're, they're basically looking at a Bavarian Disneyland and, uh, and he, he was being interviewed. I'm looking at this guy and I'm saying, I don't know who is this guy. And I look him up on the internet and he was born after I had been to Colonia Dignidad. <laughs> he was that young. I had been there actually before he was born. So yeah, I never heard from the hunting Hitler people after that. There was a brief, I think a brief outreach, as I recall, I did respond, but I never heard from them again. Um, so yeah, I mean, but what was important even more than the German-Chilean connection was getting off the plane in Miami and being greeted by two members of the FBI showing me their, their insignia and making sure it was me getting off the plane. They wanted to see my passport. Are you Peter Lavenda? Yep, looked at that, okay, bye, and they took off. And I'm thinking, what the hell is that? I so the FBI that. somehow was keeping tabs on what was going on down there, or they had an informant that maybe let them know or something. It was the latter. It had to be because I didn't know I was going to be on that plane, right? I was told I was going to be on that plane. So I get on the plane. It's going to Miami instead of New York. I had to change planes. That was not in my plan, right? So I'm in Miami. I've never been to Miami before. I'm getting off the plane in Miami, and there's two feds waiting to see me. This this was mind blowing right there. At that point, I said, "Okay, this is there's something wrong here." You yeah, know, I'm just a we, I'm just a little cog in a bigger thing yeah, that's going on here. Yeah, wait, what the hell is this all about, right? So history and religion, because the whole thing of Colonia Dignidad it was a strange religious cult as well, which is what really you know what made me want to go down there. So a strange religious cult, weird rituals on the top of a mountain, Nazi war criminals, you know, a concentration camp kind of atmosphere with the barbed wire and all of that. I mean, it's it's perfect, right? So John, it's a Robert Ludlum novel, right? 
So, sure. you know, like, how could I resist it? I had to go. But what it did was it really gave me this, the, the understanding that, okay, there's a lot more to all of this than meets the eye, right? There's something else going on here. And my focus on, on sinister forces uh, really became deeper into this nexus between religion and politics. We know that in the United States, we have this supposedly a bright line between religion and politics, separation of church and state. But that's just not possible. It's possible on the surface, on a legal aspect. But when you have religious fanatics or real religious believers as presidents or as senators or congressmen, there is no separation, right? Because they're bringing it with them and they're making it part of their worldview. Reagan, Ronald Reagan famously belonged to the same Protestant denomination as Jim Jones of Jonestown, you know, so you, you have, it's an apocalyptic version of Christianity. It, it also was uh, a follower of, of uh, astrology. His wife certainly was. Yeah. Famously. So you have this already there. It's baked in. We can't get away from it. You know, we try to, Absolutely. but we can't. We, we have this law and we think we're protected and we're really not. So that became really a major focus of all the work I did on Sinister Forces. What is really going on? I know it's too simplistic to say there's this deep state cabal controlling everything. I don't really believe that. People are too fallible. They're too greedy. They're too full of self-interest. Um, people betray each other constantly. You know, all this goes on. We see it in the, in the occult orders. You know that we're that we're familiar with that we see up front you know up front and, and personal we see it in political groups everything everybody's there is no deep state the way we think of it but is there something deeper going on that's causing these synchronicities these coincidences to pop up throughout history surrounding a particular political event and, and in your opinion do you think that's why the study of uh of occultism and esoteric traditions. That's why it's important to kind of show how it connects to a broader uh, historical and cultural narrative. Well, for those Christians out there, uh, 1 Samuel, uh, I think it's chapter 15, there's a famous line, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So political rebellion and witchcraft are synonymous. And that to me was a, was a line I used in Sinister Forces as well. There is a connection. It's a connection that's very deep. It goes all the way back when kings were representatives of gods on earth. And in some cultures, they still are. So you had the Japanese emperor, which was of course the son of heaven. Uh, the Chinese emperors were similar. You had all these, these, these people who had the divine right of kings in Europe. And you know the, the Catholic church, crowning the kings of Europe. So there was always this connection between religion and, and politics. But to me, it was deeper than that even. Um, I started to travel a lot around the world, a lot in South America, uh, not just in Chile, but throughout a lot of South America, uh, throughout Southeast Asia, throughout China, um, just all kinds of places, including throughout the United States. And one thing you begin to understand is that your history, the history that you were taught in school, the history you grew up with, is only one history. You know, you when 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 a a force, a military force, a colonizing force, goes from anywhere in Europe, well, virtually all the European countries had something like that, and they would go into Africa, for instance, and they would colonize uh, countries in Africa. 
we read about it from the perspective of the Europeans. But if you lived, if you grew up in, for instance, Nigeria, you had Nigerian history your whole life up to that point. Your Nigerian history with your gods and your kings, your religions, your cultures, everything else, suddenly, bang, slams into a wall. And it's the French, or it's the Belgians in the Congo, or it's, you know, it's it's the Brits, or it's the Germans. Suddenly, there's this a history of some other people that's been going on for thousands of years, confronts the history of another people that's been going on for thousands of years, and there's this liminal space between them. Where culture, each side, culture shock. Really, literally, figuratively, and at the point of a gun, right? So all of this is taking place, and what is the perception of these people? It's fascinating to read the colonial accounts. We went to this country and these people were savages. They were naked. They, they didn't have Jesus. They didn't, so obviously they're worshiping the devil and on and on and on and on, even here, right? Cotton Mather famously talked about the Native Americans, the indigenous populations here as being the sons of the devil because they were not mentioned in the Bible. Yeah, soulless creatures. Yeah, so yes. it was okay to wipe them out, right? Or it reminds <laughs> me of uh, the, the excerpts from Coronado talking about how they were received, uh, you know, right. uh, when they went down there, they, you know, received them like gods. You know? Right, like gods, yeah. So you had men the, wearing the, armor and, you know, carrying uh, muskets and, you know, so like you so said, it's like unlike anything that they had ever seen in, uh, before. And exactly true. So when I was working on, Sinist on uh, secret machines with Tom DeLong and that whole thing, the UFO aspect of this, this was a focus of mine, you know, people in ancient times would have looked at an alien the same way as they looked at Coronado or Pizarro or any of the conquistadores in South America or any of the, the Europeans showing up anywhere, you know, with their gunships in Japan or China, on and on. This is something alien. And the Chinese referred to Europeans as not as human, right? They were foreign devils. They were white ghosts, right? Yeah, there white devils. <laughs> yeah, there was a supernatural projection. So the other is always kind of supernatural. And it's really hard for us when we study occultism to sort of separate that out, right? To understand where our biases are concerned, where our preconceptions are concerned. And so studying occultism and studying history, studying foreign cultures all comes together. It's all part of the same thing. I mean, a lot of people have done that. Gurdjieff famously traveled all over the place and was exposed to a lot of things. Crowley did, obviously, uh, all over the world. Uh, a lot of people did. They did this traveling and it did open their minds. Maybe not enough, you know, maybe a fraction, but they did open them a little bit. They made that travel, that cultural uh, confrontation made them aware, not just of history and politics and economics, but of a spiritual dimension to all of that as well. Yeah, some commonalities in all of those cultures, you know, uh, as diverse as they are, I think like you see certain things that like all... Uh, civilizations and religions have certain foundations to them, whether you're sure. talking about like uh, an end of times or an apocalyptic uh, end or whatever. It's always yeah. a common theme in most religions. Mm -hmm. And the differences are also very telling. They're also very informative. When someone has a very different, different approach to something than you do because of their culture, because of their language, it's telling you something. We're all born with the same senses, with the same five senses, let's say. And that those five senses are our filter for what happens around us. But different cultures interpret those messages a little differently than we do. When you learn a foreign language, for instance, especially a very different foreign language, you're forced to think differently. 
you take on a different aspect. When I, when I was studying Mandarin, you begin to realize you start to move differently, you start to gesture differently, you start to react differently in conversations than you would if you're just doing a computer kind of translation in your head, right? You become an other person, a little bit, not like completely, but you do become another person. And this is makes you see things, makes you see the world a little differently. It is really mind blowing. Well, yeah, learning a language uh, at times is almost like a, a different way of thinking because yep. you can kind of try to contextualize those words or what's the literal translation, but it's the thought process of that particular dialect that I think uh, is really key. Because a lot of times uh, uh, I've talked with people from different and they'll be like, yeah, there's no word for what you're saying or, you know, to try right. to describe that. It's not in our language or, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your book on Holy Alliance. Obviously, it's like, uh, you know, you, uh, I think the book that you're most known for, it's the uh, it's the first book of yours that that I had ever come into uh, to come into possession. I think I bought it sometime in uh, the early '90s uh, in a bookstore in New York. Uh, what? Uh, yeah, it, I think it was just like a B. Dalton or something like that. It wasn't at Magical Child, which was the only place in like you know mm -hmm. in uh, you know New York to go to feel like you're a part of anything uh magical yeah. in that way you know and right and who, and who may be at the store and things like mm -hmm. that you know so but uh in your book you examine the relationship between like the nazi regime and occultism and yet like then you how do you approach the study of occultism and its impact uh when there's so many common misconceptions about what took place. Yeah, it's um, it's difficult. It's a controversial subject to study because it was kind of poisoned. The well was poisoned back in the day. Uh, in 1960, there was the Morning of the Magicians, uh, which kind of popularized this idea that there was an occult involvement with, with the Nazis. Even before that, there was a book that was published in 1945 in French, I have a copy of it around here somewhere, a very small pamphlet, but it was also talking about, you know, occult influences on the Nazis. Um, and it was a very strange book, you know, um, and, and I think that the, the Powell's and Berger book, Morning of the Magicians came out of that kind of background. And these were guys who had fought in the French resistance against the Nazis. And there, I mean, it was a fascinating book. When it came out, I read it cover to cover. I was fascinated with, with, with the material, but it was unsubstantiated. There was no documentation to support it, right? It was just these guys sort of talking about experiences they had or people they had talked to and things like that, but there was never any real documentation. So the whole idea of Nazi occultism sounded like, you know, an Indiana Jones kind of thing, right? So it was- Yes, very much so, yeah. It was, yeah, it, was, it had to be 90% fiction. And I think- historians, academic historians treated it exactly that way for the longest time. You know, there was no occultism. This is, you know, this is just, you know, stuff for movies. Which is, which is a pretty, nothing for nothing, but that's a pretty outlandish thing to say when you had a whole culture that was devoted to blood and soil and... And, and the swastika. And the swastika. Crying out loud. Like, right? if, there was <laughs> e if, if there was ever such a fervent 
uh, yeah. cult. There you there you have it. You know, it, it should have been obvious, right? But they were trying to pick it apart and, and point to all sorts of other influences and completely disregard the occultism, which is really difficult when you had Heinrich Himmler, who was a fanatic for this stuff, right? He built this castle. He reconstructed Vapel, castle. Vapelsberg. Is that yeah, it? Yeah, Vapelsberg. I was there. Um, wow. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, I was at Vapelsberg. I was there for a, uh, a television crew invited me out to do this thing. Um, it was called Faces of Evil in the 90s that came out. Um, and so they, they flew me to, to, to Germany, to Paderborn. Um, and then from Paderborn, we went to, to Wavelsburg and I recorded this whole thing at the black sun thing in the, in the crypt and all of us. Yeah. The big chamber room in the basement yeah. and everything. Pretty weird place. I can tell you. And so Himmler was obviously right. And Himmler was head of the SS, like the second most powerful guy in Germany. You know, I mean, how could you say there was no occultism there or that it wasn't that important? Uh, and then Haushofer. Karl Haushofer was a major um, uh, advisor to Hitler and to Himmler uh, and to Rudolf Hess. Rudolf Hess was a, an occult fanatic. Who bailed out of a plane, uh, whatever reasons you may say. I mean, I, right. I know there's rumors he was going to see uh, one of the royalty. I think it was yep. one of the princes who yep. was partial to their cause. Yeah, um, which there were many in England at the time. And was it also... Uh, I don't know if this is particularly associated with, but Aleister Crowley was uh, doing star charts and astrological right. charts to try to deceive them. I, or so, I've read something where that played a hand that made it feel like it was, now was the time for Rudolf Hess to get in that plane and head that way and do that. Yeah, there were a number of people. Haushofer uh, was an Orientalist. He was one of the ones who pressured uh, Hitler to bond to form an alliance with the Japanese instead of the Chinese. Haushofer had spent time in Japan. He thought Japan was the ideal candidate as a, as, as a, to work with Hitler in, in taking over the world. Haushofer was an astrologer. He did cast charts. He was telling Hess, this is the time to go. On the English side, Crowley was working with Dennis Wheatley and Ian Fleming, right? Two famous novelists, right? Very interesting. Dennis Wheatley, all the occult novels, and Ian Fleming, the James Bond novels, they were all working for British intelligence. And they knew Crowley, and they thought, Crowley, you know, he knows all the, the occultists in Germany. He's the kind of guy we need to give us information, to give us uh, intelligence about what's going on behind the scenes, and maybe help us create some kind of a program, an operation to really confuse everybody back in Nazi Germany, right? So help us understand what's going on, what they're up to, and then help us, you know, control the situation. Somebody higher up at um, British intelligence decided, uh, maybe we don't want to have you know, Alistair Crowley uh, working on our payroll for this. Uh, can we guys, can we kind of like do it quietly and maybe not give him any money, you know, something like that. So there were stories that Crowley was involved, but Wheatley and Fleming both were aware of, of Crowley. Both knew him, both had met him. Uh, Wheatley was a bit more involved with Crowley. And then in his novels, he kind of wrote about Crowley without using his name. You know, we're talking about the AA and the, you know, all the initiatory degrees and stuff. Well, I think uh, Ian Fleming, even they say, uh, what is it? Uh, what is it? Blo 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 Blothart or whatever, the one character they say maybe. Yeah, no, it was, it was um, uh, Le, Cifre, Le Chiffre in the very yeah. first, in the very first uh, Casino Royale. Yeah, said that that Crowley. was uh, loosely based on Crowley as well. Right. It's, Le know. Chiffre, which means the, the cipher, right? He was <laughs> you know, loosely based. And Le Chiffre, if you remember um, the, the movie with um, 
Mickey Rourke and uh, Robert De Niro, Angel Heart. Yes. Know, uh, De Niro's character is called Lucifer also, which is basically Lucifer, right? So this was, that was the, the joke of that, of his name, Monsieur Lucifer, right? <laughs> so, anyway, all of that sort of was all connected, you know, it's a long story. Anyway, so yes, all this is going on with the Nazis. Um, so I decided I'm going to go and check this out for myself. And the visit to Colonia Dignidad was part of that. And the other part was going to the National Archives uh, and the Library of Congress to see what I could find out. And in the National Archives, I walked into the captured German documents section. You have to fill out forms and show ID and stuff. And uh, I think his name was Robert Wolf. He was the archivist there. And I kind of was a little nervous about telling him what I really wanted to know about. I'm kind of like hemming and hawing around it. And he says, oh, you want to see the Ananerba documents, you know, the SS documents dealing with occultism. And I'm looking at him like, you can do that? That does exist, right? <laughs> I'm thinking this is, I'm going to have to really pull at straws. And he just leads me to the microfilm. And I'm sitting there staring at all this stuff. And I'm saying, how come nobody's written about this? It's right here. They're all making stuff up. They're speculating like crazy. But I'm looking at it. And so I, I'm in a state of excitement. But you have to pay for every sheet that you copy. I had to copy this stuff. It's all in German. It's newspapers. It's articles. It's the Germans' own, the SS' own documentation. I'm going nuts. And I'm spending a fortune. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, you don't want to miss a thing. No. So I, had, I put all of this stuff, you know, and I'm carrying this all out. And I make a couple of trips. And on the very first trip, Dr. Wolf looks to me, he looks at my ID stuff that I had filled out. And he said, Bendix Corporation, which is who I worked for at the time. And he said, but you guys were just in here last week. Did you forget something? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, oh, shit. Oh, man. Oh, no. Here we go again, right? It was not enough having the feds meet me after, you know, in Miami. And now my own company, which has a lot of or had a lot of uh, Defense Department contracts, not just our Defense Department, but Defense Departments around the world. And, you know, they were there. This was all during the Watergate era. And they were there, I don't know, trying to get documents, Nazi. Why would Bendix want Nazi documents, right? But he says, oh, yeah, you guys were here, you know, the same documents, right? I'm thinking, oh, shit. wow. <laughs> you know, so something's going on, right? So that just kept reinforcing every every confrontation, every event kept reinforcing me in this determination to try to get to the bottom of this, like, what the hell is really going on? You know, it's got to be something more than what I initially started off thinking. Well, I think the thing that really kind of grabs you is the fact that they were so immersed in occultism and symbolism and everything, and nobody was talking about that. No, right. just nobody whatsoever. No. no, they weren't. And, you know, people have come out since then, people who worked for the Reich. Uh, they worked for Himmler. Um, his, uh, his personal astrologer wrote a book um about that and a lot of details that i was able to corroborate later about the pendulum institute you know the nazis had a pendulum institute so they would look for for american submarines or british submarines using a pendulum over a map of the ocean right and wherever that pendulum started swinging they would mark that down and send the notice to their submarines to go and look in that direction and much, were, much like the uh remote viewing programs that the u.s and the russians uh employed exactly with, uh, ingo swan ingo swan yeah now I have a story about Ingo Swan. I never met him. Uh, he also was involved with the American Society for Cyclical Research as I was, but different, we never, our paths never crossed. 
And I'm in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, on the other side of the world. And, I'm, and I have a big stretch of time ahead of me. I'm going to research, finalize my research for sinister forces. And I get to the point where I'm researching Ingo Swan and Hal Putoff and Andre Pucharich and SRI, the whole, the whole crew, Jacques Vallée, everybody. I'm at that point. So I decide I'm going to go for a walk. I go to a walk in a neighborhood, you know, I had not gone to before, downtown Kuala Lumpur, but sort of in the alleys and the small areas. And I pass by an old bookstore. It's just open to the street. Books are covered in dust. Nothing much happening, a very sleepy looking thing. I walk in there because I see books, I have to look. And I go in there and there's Ingo Swan's penetration is sitting right there in front of me. Exactly the book I need for the research. <laughs> in Kuala Lumpur, in Malaysia, right? It's <laughs> just sitting there waiting for me. And I still have it and it has the, the Ringgit Malaysia price tag on the back. I said, what the hell? And then I'm researching the Salem witchcraft trials. Another walk, another part of the city, someplace else entirely. A slew of academic treatises on the Salem witchcraft trials. Wow. I mean, weird, bizarre stuff I didn't know existed. And for, you know, I'm, I'm paying Ringgit Malaysia for it, so they're inexpensive things. I'm saying, I needed this, right? I collect all that and I go back. And the final one was on Charles Manson. I'm doing the whole Manson thing. I'm doing that and someplace else what shows up, but a bunch of stuff on Charles Manson. When I'm doing the chapters, when I needed them, in Kuala Lumpur, they just show up. You know, it's scattered places all over the city. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how things will present themselves to you. Yeah. yeah. Or people, that is, too. You know, the, it, too. Yeah. the uh, idiosyncrasies of life, you know, and it, it just, it's very interesting. I've talked to other guests like, when I spoke with Don Webb, and, you know, he had said the same thing that, you know, uh, before he was even involved in the Temple of Set, he had watched something on like Geraldo and had made a, a, a funny comment at work about it. And after that, uh, a coworker took him to the side and ex said, uh, well, if you really want to meet Dr. Aquino, I think I could uh, introduce you guys. And it's just like, wow, out of the blue, like, you know, th yep. this, this, you know, fellow coworker that, you know, all of a sudden was going to put you in touch with, with someone or a topic that had right. just come into your life. You know, it's like immediately at that moment for that reason, you know? Well, I, I wrote about Aquino, you know, and in Sinister Forces, or maybe not Sinister Forces, in the Holy Alliance, I think, because of Vadelsberg and the, the castle and Aquino going there and doing rituals. And out of the clear blue sky, he contacts me. And he was very friendly about it. Like, he was kind of amused and, you know, kind of friendly and stuff. And he said, listen, I'm going to a meeting of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers in Las Vegas. You should come down, hang out with us, and, you know, we'll talk about the whole, you know, the, 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 the court case that was taking place at the Presidio, all this other stuff. Just, you know, I thought to myself, well, I can't pass that up, right? Right. So I no way, no problem. So I show up in Vegas, Las Vegas, and AFI, Sin City. <laughs> Sin City, really. And here's, you know, the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. I had to be vetted before I could attend this thing. You have to be an American citizen. I think there's other requirements, but eventually they let you in. Um, and it is this, I was going to say spookiest, which is kind of a pun. It was the strangest um, conglomeration, conglomeration of people. I mean, 
it's an experience i'll never forget. and aquino was was very nice to the whole thing answered any questions i had. lilith was there as well and other people were there. john alexander was there, famous guy in ufo circles um and a lot of people i mean i met all of these spies right and they're all hanging out and they all loved aquino i mean aquino was like their hero that's amazing. Yeah. It really he had been is. Out, and then he'd been brought back in. He had been the charges have been dropped because there's was not enough evidence. And his he was reinstated and all of this. And he shows up and they're all like want their picture taken and stuff. It's like, what the hell is going on here? You know? And we wind up going to, you know, the areas, you know, area 51. We didn't get that far. But the other areas outside of Vegas, you know, we're looking at at drones, you know, we're hanging out with, you know, drone operators and stuff. It's like, what the wow. hell is this? And that was, and Aquino is one of those moments where we, we we went on like haunted Las Vegas tours and stuff. The whole thing was just so bizarre. You know, it was kitschy at one point, mixed with all of these intelligence officers, you know, yeah. and all this stuff, all their stories that they couldn't tell me. And, you know, presentations on Area 51, we had one, and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, how did I manage to, to show up here? You know, <laughs> I wrote this one book on Holy Alliance, and now suddenly I'm hanging out with Aquino and Temple of Set people. And did you have maybe some fans uh, at that that had read uh, Unholy oh, Alliance? No, no, no. I was keeping a really low profile, you know, at the time. I don't think any, these were, they looked at me strangely. And one guy was sure we had worked together. I mean, this guy was, he came up to me. I'll never forget. I know him. you. I know was, you. Oh, yeah. We, Remember that time we went and I had to stop him right there. I said, because I, I was afraid he was going to say something, yeah. you know, that they'd have to shoot me or something. Yeah. Said, when we remember when we killed that guy and, uh... yeah, right, <laughs> and I had to stop. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm showing him. My, I'm not who you think I am. <laughs> he looks at me like, no, no, you must not. No, I'm not. He says, okay. Like I was undercover. Oh, was not. Was yeah. It? Like that's your story. Like, that's yeah, no, story. that's not me. Yeah. That's my legend. No, no, no. no. <laughs> so, I mean, that was par for the course that that weekend it was very very strange but that's a bit aside but Aquino I since then I had talked to him over the phone and we exchanged emails and stuff for a long time uh, before he passed away he was an interesting an interesting person he kind of bought into a lot of conspiracy theories and I tried to disabuse him of here and there when I could uh, particularly concerning Parkland the Parkland massacre that he thought was a hoax and I said Kind of not because I live like an hour, an hour. Mm. I live like a 10 minutes from there, a few, you know, a short drive from Parkland. I know one of the families that lost a son. I said, so it's definitely not a hoax. And then he sort of backpedaled from that and said, sorry, I was getting carried away by whatever. But well, you know, I think like maybe when you live in a world of all of that stuff, like sure. uh, everything is plausible. It, it, it kind of reminds me of the Alex Jones thing with the Sandy Hook and right. thinking uh, that they were stage actors. Turns out. Right. He was wrong and you know uh they sued him right. for like a billion dollars or yeah, right. whatever you know but uh yeah i you know i think when you're looking at conspiracy theories every day and and maybe sometimes they start to look look more like conspiracy facts uh but you've, you you've got to be very critical in your thinking. everything's pla no. everything's plausible i everything's guess at some plausible. level well aquino I mean, his career was in psychological warfare operations, right? He was PSYOP. That's what he did in Vietnam. The Phoenix operation, the Phoenix program, that was part of what Aquino did. You wow. Know? So he was creating false narratives. He was creating, quote unquote, fake news. That was his whole job. 
<laughs> so that's what he did. He tried to convince the Vietnamese that there were ghosts, you know, feeding on the corpses or something. All this stuff he would just keep, you know, and he was manipulating the consciousness and the minds and the dreams and the reality of an entire population in order to, to further the war effort. So when you do that as your job, <laughs> on the one hand, and you're an occultist, on the other hand, right, which again, we're getting back to the politics and occultism, marriage, right? So here's Aquino, who's an occultist. I mean, if you read the Temple of Set material, I mean, he started with, with Anton LaVey's uh, The Church of Satan, created his own Temple of Set, very high caliber, sort of very intellectual approach to the material. But nonetheless, with rituals and with, you know, magical operations and that sort of thing, and a lot of, you know, a lot of heavy reading, um, he, he's studying how to manipulate consciousness. That's what that is. What did Crowley call magic, right? The science and art of creating, you know, causing change to occur mm -hmm. in conformity with will. So how do you cause change to occur? In a huge target population, it's, it's psychological warfare. What the Germans call worldview warfare. You know, you change somebody's worldview, you've won the war. Yeah, and not to get all political, but I mean, it's still that process is still being used, whether it, it was about the vaccinations with the uh, COVID shots and stuff like that. It, it had all the same things, the conspiracy theories sure. and, uh, you know, about nanobots being in the yeah. uh, vaccine and everything. And, I've had arguments with people on that thing. I'm trying to make them understand that's not how it works. And they said, but they're going to track me. They're going to know everything about me. I said, you've got one of these things. You've got a cell phone. It's, you've already lost. You're posting your lunch everywhere you go to eat and yeah, where you're you going thinking? and everything. Yeah, you, know. you don't need nanobots, you fool. Right? You've already given them all the information they need. They know exactly where you are. They know what you want to buy before you know what you want to buy. I and mean, you're buying everything on credit so they right. can look and there's an account of everything because exactly. nobody uses cash. And, you know. Right. So, I mean, so it became, I just got. I was speechless all the time, especially during COVID. I wanted to shake people. And, you know, vaccines are no good. They'll kill you. You know, I had the polio vaccine in the 1950s. Thank God for the polio vaccine. And then ever since then, because of my foreign travels, I have a yellow booklet here with all my vaccinations for malaria, for this, for that, for other things. I mean, oh, all sure, things yeah. saved my life, you know. So don't tell me about the COVID vaccine, you fools. You know, go to go to school, you know, take science classes, take medicine classes, get a, get a, get a degree, and then come back and tell me. Well, so, I, think, I think when you bake that in, Peter, with the genuine distrust of government, yeah. I think which that- is, has, Which there's a real reason for that. Yes. As I write about in Sinister Forces, you know, you should distrust the government, but when you distrust it to the point where you believe that it's a, bunch of witches in a secret room underneath a pizzeria in Washington, D.C., where they're killing kids for their adrenochrome, you are lost your mind. You've got to calm down, you know, calm down. Look at the facts. There are facts. You can find them the same place you're getting your weird stories. Keep looking, right? Yeah. Those YouTube videos that you love so much, calm down, take a breath, start <laughs> looking at the documents. The CIA has put Tons of documents. The FBI has tons of documents. Things are being released under the Freedom of Information Act all the time. Slower now than you before, but still they're there. We know, yes, the CIA was evil. Okay, in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they were evil. In the 70s, they got their their hands slapped pretty hard um, because of all the crap they had been up to until then. 
And now you go to CIA headquarters in Langley, there's like 10 lawyers on every floor listening to every conversation to make sure nobody says anything bad, you know, and says anything stupid. Well, Ken, so, Ken, Kennedy wanted to shatter them, didn't he? Yeah. He, he wanted to disband them. For a reason. They you lied know? to they lied to him about the Bay of Pigs and, yep. and, and all the events leading up to that. Yep. And what does that tell you, right? So people would, I mean, I grew up in the 60s, so of course we distrusted government. We didn't want to go to Vietnam, as we started off this discussion saying. We distrusted the government. We didn't know, we distrusted the body counts. All of that was nonsense, you know. And the body counts were always heavily inflated. We knew this. We were being lied to at every step of the way. If we don't fight them there, we'll fight them here. Okay, sure. And all of that was going on, and I grew up listening to that. So I grew up distrusting. But when you distrust, you know, you have to verify even your distrust. You've got to find out what really happened, figure out who the bad guys really are, or you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. When it comes to that's where evidence comes in and, and diligent yeah. investigation yeah. And, and facts uh, exactly. to back up your uh, claims. And this applies equally well to occultism and occult practice as it does to investigating conspiracies, politics, the military, economics or anything else. Occultism should be backed up as well. Um, of course, it's a it's a soft science in the sense it could be categorized under one of the humanities, maybe. Mm -hmm. But it is it does require proof, at least for yourself. So that's why, you know, Crowley, not only Crowley, but everyone says keep a diary, keep a record, see what experiments are repeatable, see if you get the same results. Keep checking, keep doing this, keep, you know, and keep an open mind, St stand back from what you're doing. Don't become so immersed in it, you lose all sense of perspective. And, you know, you're seeing demons every place that you look because that does happen to people. Let's see, that's um, always been a key thing is to <laughs> documentation, to keep a log, sure. and, you know, because that when you go back to that and look a year or two years later, you can kind of see maybe, maybe the path that has been taken, you know. It's extremely valuable. You go back and you look at something, you say, oh, my God, I already knew this at this time. I was doing it or they were trying to tell me something because this happened. It's really valuable. People don't understand how valuable it is. Uh, but since you don't distrust, since you don't trust the government, maybe you don't want to keep a digital copy of that document. Maybe you want to <laughs> keep an analog someplace where it's buried, you know, but that's up to, to, to you guys. You know, I don't know if the government really cares about your your dreams, but, you know, we could be living in a Twin Peaks world where that becomes now important, you know, so. Well, there's actually, uh, I, I saw it not too long ago, there was like a WEF uh, cartoon. It's like a little thing and it was uh, about how your boss could read your mind waves and they could tell whether yep. you're on task at work or you're not on task or, yep. you, you know. We're getting there, <laughs> absolutely, it's happening. You know, I have to speak to you. I noticed that, you know, for a couple hours there at work, uh, you, your productivity dipped off because you're you know, brain waves were going in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's no place I want to. <laughs> no, no, no. I agree with you 100%. And I worked at Bendix, which was, you know, a bit like that. I mean, <laughs> didn't have the technology yet, but they were getting there. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, the, the, the study of occultism and the study of politics, the study of history, it's all one piece to me. I mean, it's it's not in separate boxes. And we add, we have to fold in the the whole UFO UAP thing as well, because it's all here with the UFO UAP phenomenon, you have a scientific anomaly, which has a consciousness anomaly attached to it. So this is something that is really up our alley. 
And if we're you know really researching occultism, we cannot really ignore the the UFO thing. People do; they want that separate. They don't want to clutter up their mind with all of this. But as I've always told people, um, if all you read about UFOs are UFO books, you don't know anything about UFOs. You it's it's funny because when you just brought that up, I was going to say, and then we we have to add the layer in our 4D chess game of not only politics and occultism, but the UFO phenomenon sure. and how that, because it, it integrates into both politics and occultism the way that those two amalgamate together as well. Sure. And in Secret Machines, you, uh, you uncover hidden truths about UFO phenomena and their impact in the world. Can we talk a little about that? And Please. maybe uh, on uh, it, according to the flow that we've been talking about occultism and politics. Sure. When did you take on the UFO uh, phenomena? Well, I had written about it in Sinister Forces, so I'd already talked about it, but it was like one chapter in this three volume thing, but it, it, it jumped out at me. I felt impelled, compelled uh, to study it because of the these stupid conspiracies, these cons these synchronicities and coincidences that crop up, they don't make any sense. So, you know, I had been studying the Kennedy assassination like everybody else studying conspiracies. And I had all the bo books on it and, you know, the Gareth Yeltsin stuff. And I was deeply embedded in, you know, studying, trying to separate the wheat from the chaff where that was concerned. And I came across the weird situation with Andrea Puharich and the nine in the 1950s you know, and all the seances they were holding and all of this, that's, that, that's percolating in the background. And then I'm looking at the Kennedy assassination and that's percolating in the background. But then suddenly I come across Garrison, Jim Garrison's interviews, you know, who, the people he's talking to. And one of them was Fred Crisman. And I said to myself, wait a minute, I know that name. Fred Crisman, that's an unusual name. There can't be two, right? So I started researching Fred Crisman, and sure enough, Fred Crisman was like at the very first UFO event of, of the late 20th or the mid 20th century in 1947, just before Kenneth Arnold and his famous sightings. There was Fred Crisman in Puget Sound with a UFO or a flight of UFOs, one of which was in distress and which rained debris down on one of his employees, a guy called Harold Dahl. And the, the, the debris came down, it killed a dog, it wounded a kid and, you know, hurt, hurt the boat they were on. So Dahl, you know, limps back into port and tells, and tells Chrisman, you know, we have this situation here, something was flying around, this happened. So it turned into this UFO thing, the Maury Island Affair, as it's known. And Chrisman was the guy, Chrisman was the guy in charge of this thing. And Chrisman decides he's going to talk to the people at uh, Amazing Tales or Fantastic stories of Shaver anyway. Um, and he's, we're going to talk about this It's like a UFO thing, you know, and then Kenneth Arnold's sighting happens. So now, Chrisman has all these pieces of this UFO, supposedly, in a box. And he says, we have to call the Air Force and tell them we have this. So the Air Force shows up. Uh, Kenneth Arnold shows up, all these people show up mysteriously in this one hotel. And they have this big discussion and the Air Force guys pick up the pieces in the box and they're going to take it back with them to their air base to have it uh, analyzed. Okay, they get back on the plane. They're flying this bomber, I think, back to their air base and the bomber blows up in midair. 
and the two men are killed. The crew is not killed. The crew parachutes to safety, but the two intelligence officers are, are, are killed, and of course, the debris from the UFO disappears. Okay, that story is known. It's documented. We know what happened. So you fast forward to the 1960s, from 1947 to the 1960s, and now Jim Garrison thinks Fred Crisman is one of the co-conspirators in the Kennedy assassination. What? And then we start pulling at that thread a little bit more, and we realize that Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans was famously seen at the offices of a guy called Guy Bannister. Guy Bannister was former FBI, and then he opened up his own detective agency in New Orleans, although he had been stationed in Chicago. But before Chicago, he was in charge of the Pacific Northwest and was reporting in the 1940s on UFO sightings directly back to J. Edgar Hoover. So Guy Bannister is like interviewing all these UFO contactees. He's trying to take all the information he can about UFO reports, and every single one is sent right to Hoover's direct attention by telegram from wherever he is. And the subject matter is always SM-X. These were the X files, the original, actual, verifiable X files. And so there's Bannister doing that. There's Chrisman. Bannister's researching Chrisman, like, what's up with this guy? Chrisman claims to have an OSS background, that he was in Asia during the war for the, the Office of Strategic Services, which was the forerunner of CIA. Bannister is FBI. Now they're both considered potential suspects in the Kennedy assassination. Bannister's long dead. He died in 64. Chrisman is still alive. They're being investigated. But as all this is going on, right, then I discover that by accident, I'm reading, I'm reading the, the, the Warren Commission report, the full report, right, all the volumes, right? So I'm going through the, the Warren Commission report, and I come across the statement of uh, Ruth Payne. Ruth Payne is where Oswald stayed briefly in Dallas when he was looking for a job, and his wife, Marina, stayed there with their kid and all this other stuff. That's the famous Ruth Payne. And Ruth Payne, um, she's starting to talk about visiting her in-laws. Her in-laws was a guy called um, Arthur Young. Arthur Young in Pennsylvania. And here's it again. I'm looking at this. I said, this can't be right. Arthur Young, the famous parapsychological investigator, the guy who invented the Bell helicopter, he's her father-in-law? Wow. And she goes to visit him two months before the assassination when she has a Russian defector living in her house? <laughs> That's crazy. Nothing to see here, right? Nothing to look at here. So she's trying to talk about this visit. Alan Dulles is in the room. He cuts her off. He says, no, 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 no something about taxes and totally derails her story. So she never got to tell that story. So that made me really curious, like, what the hell is this? So you start pulling at more threads and you realize that Alan Dulles's mistress was a woman called Mary Bancroft. And Mary Bancroft was best friends with Arthur Young's wife. Wow. They were like that. They were best friends forever, BFFs, the two of them. So I'm thinking, holy crap. Oswald never had a chance. Here's Oswald. He's in the house of Ruth Payne. Ruth Payne's father-in-law is Arthur Young. Arthur Young was having seances in Maine in the 50s with Andrea Puharich talking to a freaking flying saucer in low Earth orbit 
saying, we are nine and you are nine. We're the nine principles and forces. You're going to change the world, right? And wow. this is Andrea Puharich, who is the guy who discovered Uri Geller, you know, uh, Peter Herkos, he was with all these uh, psychics and stuff. He was fanatically involved with that. But he was also a major in the U.S. Army. And he would give le lectures at Edgewood Arsenal on weaponizing the paranormal. So all of these people, this one tight little group. All tied planet, together. Yeah. All tied together. How can you not study occultism and politics and conspiracies and science and all the rest of it all together? Because you need that background to make any sense of this. To see the whole picture. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. Otherwise, you're just going to look where the light is better. That famous joke I always tell where the drunk comes out of the bar and he's looking for his keys. He dropped his keys on the sidewalk and people are go up to him. Can we help you? Where did you where did you last see your keys? And he says, oh, across the street over there. And they say, well, why are you looking over here? And he says, well, the light is better. That's what we do in history. You know, if our background is occultism, we're going to look at occultism as the answer for everything. But we really don't know occultism. We think we do. We read a couple of books. We saw a couple of TikToks, and now we're experts, right? <laughs> but that's not why people, you know, spent their whole lives in the Middle Ages and, and before and after to be on TikTok. There was no TikTok. So what were they doing it for, right? So there's the occultism, and then there's politics. And you look at politics, but the occult stuff comes in. So we ignore it. In the case of Nazi Germany, it's ignored. In the case of the Kennedy assassination, it's ignored. It's nothing to see here, you know? So history and occultism, they're there. Science, now we're confronting the UFO phenomenon. And, and, UFO, and UFOs and occultism definitely have their ties. Let's go back to the Vril. Right. In, well, in early yeah. Germany, with yeah. wasn't it the long-haired women who had uh, direct contact with the Vril? And that was the story. Yep. That's where they were getting their UFO technology, and you know, which is actually interesting, Peter, because I live probably about 15 minutes from Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. And that's where the purported Nazi bell crash landed. Sure. Yeah. And every year, the fire department there has kind of like a carnival, but mm -hmm. they frame it around and they get some cryptozoologist people there. And it, it's oh, pretty cheesy, but you get some nice artisans. I have these nice, like, uh, I have this uh, carving thing out of wood and it's actually the Nazi bell, like slamming into the earth. And all. Wow. so you find all these neat, uh, Christmas ornaments and stuff sure. like that for it. <laughs> but I've always been uh, infatuated about the Nazi bell, the die Glocken uh, mm -hmm. and the whole take on that. I do believe the, the guy who was in charge of that program vanished. They never found him after the war. Yeah, we have, uh, I think it's going to be in book three. Sorry guys, but book three of Secret Machines. Um, we go into a bit of the Nazi uh, UFO stuff. Not a lot of it is very well known because we, we tend to disregard it right away. Um, we know the Horton brothers. There were these two brothers. They invented a flying wing, which looked a lot like uh, Kenneth Arnold's drawing of the UFOs that he saw in 1947. It's almost identical, uh, but the, the Horton uh, diagrams still exist. The, the details, you know, the, there are prototypes that were made. So we know that they were involved with it. One of the Horton brothers wound up in Argentina after the war. Uh, and a lot of other Russian, uh, excuse me, German scientists wound up uh, down there as well. The possibility that they may have set up some kind of an operation to to do, to do create a UFO or to back engineer a UFO or whatever you want to say, uh, is, is possible. They had enough scientists down there. And there was a connection 
a kind of a network between the the Nazi scientists in South America and the Nazi scientists still in Europe and those in the United States. They're, they were in communication, which is something that is not enough understood or, or talked about. But they were they were sending letters from from New Mexico and Arizona and, and in Texas, they were sending letters back to Germany that were never intercepted. They were found out later to have been in, back and forth when they found letters from Germany, which substantiated the fact that the Nazis were in communication, even with potentially scientists, Nazi scientists in the Soviet Union, of which there were thousands mm. with their families. They set up entire towns in, in the Soviet Union uh, to do uh, Nazi space science and, and aeronautical science. So that was going on. Argentina was going on. Chile, to a certain extent, was going on. Other countries had their hands full. Australia had uh, like their own version of Area 51 with Nazi scientists there as well. So this was happening, you know. Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Everywhere. Everybody had their, their pet Nazi scientists somewhere, mm -hmm. right? So this was going on. So you have people, some of whom were pure scientists, some of whom were SS officers, some of whom had high rank in the SS. They were true believers. You didn't separate them out. Um, uh, the, the, the boss of um, Werner von Braun um, was a diehard Nazi. He was identified as such by American intelligence. We don't want this guy in the United States. You know, he's terrible. You can't bring him in. But we brought him in, and we brought him in, and we put him in. Um, uh, the Air Force Base right, right field at that time in Ohio, at the same month we were bringing the Roswell debris into right field to be analyzed. And well, who's and, there but Walter Schoen? And they've always felt that if we didn't grab Von Braun, the uh, Russians were going to grab him. So, sure. you know, it was justified. You know. But yeah. there's always been, I, I believe, a lot of... Uh, the slave labor that was used there testified to uh, the brutality of uh, oh, Victor Oh, there was von no Braun. doubt. Yeah. And von Braun was a high-ranking SS officer. You don't get that as a, as a gift or as an award. Himmler was extremely careful about who could join the SS, um, the, the actual SS, not the... He had SS troops that were sort of mishmash of people wherever he found them. But that kind of SS officer had to, you know satisfy certain requirements racially and ethnically and all kinds of other ways uh, that's not that was not easy to get yeah i right. think von braun i believe was a major in the ss the equivalent of a major so he was high ranking he was a real ss officer well if you ever see that picture when they're surrendering he's got his arm like yeah. uh, where he, and he's smiling ear to ear because sure. you know, there's yeah. no fear in the man there's no fear no. there no but one of one of the guys did escape right the famous general that escaped that we didn't know what happened to him but if we thought he went to czechoslovakia he went across the line uh he was the guy that would have had access to uh the glocka the the, the, the bell mm -hmm. and all the rest of that technology and uh, we don't know what happened to that general but lately a book came out saying that we had him uh we had him and we buried him you know we kept him really away from everybody else because he was the chief administrator he knew where all the bodies were buried literally and figuratively um, so this guy just did not surface, but um, so much went on. There was just so much more. In the 1940s, the post-war period saw a kind of pro-Nazi sentiment in the United States that's hard to believe today. Maybe not, not today, but hard to believe anyway at the time. You would think that after the war, the Nazis would be our eternal enemies. Right. But we were kind of soft on that because of communism. 
communism was the bigger evil, so we kind of started embracing Nazis. You know, that's very that's very true. The Red Scare replaced yeah. replaced uh, the you know the Nazi uh, paradigm so quickly. Sure, but and, this country was always more anti-communist than it was ever anti-fascist, right? Yes, absolutely. So we went through the 1930s with a heavy amount of anti-fascist propagandizing here. And I think at the end of World War II, it was everybody like it seemed like America just wanted to be done with it, right? And we just wanted to bring our boys home and and get back to it. And like you said, there was just all these unanswered questions and, you, you know, and, and only till now people like, uh, like yourself, you know, bringing this to light. And as time goes on, it's even like you keep referencing the Kennedy assassination. Why is it that we're still not releasing right. the paperwork? Why are we going another 50 years? Who could possibly still be alive that was involved or culpable? You right. know, I, I think because it's going to show my, my personal opinion is that it's going to show that the CIA directly was involved and may have, you know, planned it and everything. And of course, that's still an institution that's still uh, we you know, in government today. So, you know, even though nobody there at the time was associated with it, you know, it's yeah. just more bad light on the CIA. Well, when I was a kid in the 60s, these were our, our enemies, right? It was the FBI, the CIA, the U.S. government in general, the Pentagon. These were the enemies. We got out of Vietnam. There was Watergate. There was Nixon, all this stuff. Then there were the congressional committees on Watergate, on uh, the assassinations, and on the CIA. All of this came out. All that dirty laundry, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it, hit the newspapers, hit the, the media. We were aware of it. Things were done to ameliorate that, to, to change it, to make things better, you know? People say, how come when you were in the 60s, you were so against everybody, right? And now you're not as against everybody as you were. I mean, you hang out with a guy like Jim Semivan, right, from the CIA at To the Stars, right? Or, or, or Chris Mellon. When you write about the Mellon family and Sinister Forces, I say, yeah, but, you know, these institutions, it's hard to turn a ship around in the middle of the ocean, right, on a dime, but it can happen. And you've got to keep uh, your contacts there pushing that ship in the right direction. You've got to keep talking to people like that. And things have changed in all of these institutions. They haven't changed completely. There's still a lot of problems. There are some basic philosophical problems we have in this country as to how to run things mm -hmm. and what our values are. We're still fighting that tremendously right now. In There's our a huge division in this country. Huge. huge, huge, huge. So it's going on, right? So it's really hard to say, you know, calm down and make sure your powder is dry, you know, make sure that you, you look at these, these institutions, you look at the documents and you identify the bad people. And, you know, you, you make sure these bad operations have stopped. You make sure you're not paying for things that we shouldn't be paying for, but we're not going to get rid of the government. We're not going to get rid of the Pentagon. We're not going to get rid of CIA or FBI. That's not going to happen. Right. We're going to have some kind of an intelligence apparatus. We're going to have some kind of a military apparatus. So how do we best use what we have? How do we get rid of the bad, keep the good, and keep this thing running the way it should be running, right? Um, I, I guess that's my position now at my advanced age, mm -hmm. of having gone through all the vicissitudes of all of these wars that we've been in, and all of the lies, the lies about Iraq and weapons of mass destruction and all the rest of it. Well, they're the, we're the, the United States is the most warring country ever. Huh. I don't think we've ever not been in a war since World War II. Right. Not in my lifetime.
I mean, maybe a few a few years pause. I mean, you have Syria. You know, I mean, it yeah. just keeps going on and on and on and on. It's like, it, what's the one common denominator? We're involved, right? And we had to at some point sit down and, and do a some little soul searching on that and figure out what it is we really need to keep doing. You know, national security is used too often for everything. It's mm -hmm. used as a blanket excuse for anything. And it's a hands-off term, like hands-off, right. you know, it's right. national security. And it's kind of dumb. You know, yeah. it was yeah. done during Vietnam, and it's still dumb. You know, that excuse can no longer be the, the blanket excuse they use for everything. John That's Podesta, we, we talked to Podesta face-to-face -face about classification. Mm -hmm. and I, I, I've talked about this before. And Podesta... I asked Podesta, it's like, all this stuff on UFOs is still classified, all these things we can't get access to? Does, does that make sense? Can the president just blanketly declassify everything? And he says, actually, no, that's not the way it works. He says, guess what? If you want somebody to read a document in the US government, you classify it. If they get a document that says classified, top secret, they're gonna read it. If they get a document that doesn't have a classification mark and goes to the bottom of the pile, <laughs> so, so we've learned to start classifying things so that people will pay attention. He says, we have menus that are classified, right? For the well, cafeteria in the White House. Right? Well, uh, attention's one thing I think we're lacking these days. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, we're, we're a uh, society of headlines and 160 character texts on Twitter right. and, and things like that. And we're not interested in all the facts. And can you imagine trying to explain anything in a tweet? I mean, anything of any substance. You can say, hi, how are you in a tweet? That's pretty much about it. I try. People will ask me questions and I try to fit it in those characters. And what happens is, you know, you lose context. You lose a lot when you do that. And then you have to do another tweet to clarify the previous tweet. And you're still writing a book in the end. I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, you have that issue and you have the, the other issue that the president actually cannot willy-nilly declassify things. Um, everybody on that list has to be part of the declassification process. So if your memo had three guys on it, three people from different agencies, CIA, FBI, NSA, for instance, each one of those agencies has to sign off on the declassification, which means it ain't gonna happen. Right? right. It's gonna go through all these stages before anybody looks at it and decides, okay, we can release this. Well, so another, another interesting dynamic when we get about releasing stuff is the fact that you have like RFK talking about his father being assassinated and pretty much points at who he thinks did it. Yep. At that moment, he identifies the man he believes that shot, his, shot and killed his father and stuff. And uh, it's just amazing that we're that all that stuff is still just not for uh, public consumption yet well you bring up bobby and you know here we are again with the occult connection because if you look at sir han sir han's notebook which is declassified and you can download it from the internet it's full of, of occult references it's replete with them sir han was fascinated by theosophy he joined or he attended meetings of the theosophical society in los angeles he went to the to amor to the rosicrucian society really i did he, not know that yeah, it's all in his book. He was talking about Hawaiian methods of, of occultism, of mysticism, uh, meditation ideas, all kinds of stuff is in there. In so it doesn't team. sound like somebody who was programmed. And, uh... Yeah. 
Except there's pages and pages where he writes page to the order of, page to the order of, page to the order of, page to the, on and on for pages. Wow. So, I mean, here's, the, here's our putative assassin uh, of, of Robert Kennedy, right, who had first spent a couple of weeks going to all these occult meetings, even being hypnotized in one nightclub, according to one informant, and then going out and uh, doing this assassination, which he claims he doesn't remember, but he admits he did. Right. 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 He's not ducking his responsibility, but he said, I have no memory at all. I walked in and, and the next thing I know, I'm on the floor, you know, and Rosie Greer's on top of me. He says, I didn't I had no I have no memory of this. I don't know why I would have killed him. I don't. So many unanswered questions. You know? So many. And why at this point? So many years later, that was 1968. We can't figure it out in that amount of time, you know, and, and we wonder why we could anything. Sure that we feel there's they're not telling us that's why i have to feel sympathy for the QAnon crowd and for the other conspiracy i mean i hear so much of this all the time and it's like but you know you're in my wheelhouse now calm down you know <laughs> this thing that you're talking about really didn't happen the way you're saying it happened like this no i saw it someplace yeah i'm sure you did see it somewhere but that's not here's a book here's where i wrote about it in detail doesn't matter you know and i feel sympathy because now I'm part of the problem, right? You know, because I've lived too long, maybe. <laughs> and I, I have too many strange friends. So now I've become part of the problem. And I tell people, listen, I write books, I interview people. I've interviewed actual Nazis, neo-Nazis, Klansmen, Satanists, uh, Islamic terrorists, um, anybody you can think of. I mean, I've interviewed all these people. That doesn't mean I joined all their organizations, you know, or that I'm trying to def defend them. I write about them. And I will write whatever I write. I'm not bound by oaths of secrecy. I haven't joined any orders. I will just write whatever, you know, I'll protect people as sources if I need to. Sure. But otherwise, it's all out there. I'm not hiding anything, you know, so, but there's this assumption that I can't trust you because you've written all these books. You know? well, well, <laughs> that makes no sense. Yeah. No. Um, talking about controversy, I, I have to hit you up about this. I so, think we're running out of time. <laughs> our, <laughs> Go ahead. Well, thank you very much, Peter. <laughs> Lay it on me. There's always been speculation regarding yeah. your connection to hmm. the pseudonym author Simon, hmm. the writer of the Necronomicon. Did you clarify your involvement or lack thereof with the Simon Necronomicon and address the controversy. No. Um, yes, I can. Actually, I can try to. I can, I can up to a certain point. Number one, Simon did not write the Necronomicon. Simon wrote the introduction to the Necronomicon. Right. Um, this goes back again to 19, not 1968. In this case, it's 1972, I think. In 1972, okay, this is going to take a long segue, a long side trip to get here. I was creating, I created this church in order to get out of Vietnam, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Slo the Slovak uh, one, right? Slavonic Orthodox yeah, Church, to give the short form name. The full name was Autocephalus Slavonic Orthodox Catholic, Orthodox and Catholic Church of North and South America. Or something. It was a long name, a wrong incorporation. And we had created this, this organization. And there was a lot of, I mean, I, I began to realize that what happened is we, we were involved with a kind of intelligence front. And um, there's a long story about that, probably there's no time for that. 
but I, I became disenchanted with this whole operation. I decided to pull out and pull away from it, which I did successfully for about a year or so. And then I got a call back from my friend with whom I had created this church, who was now running the church himself. And he said, listen, I need your help. I have a couple of monks that have joined my church. Um, they don't know you. They never heard of you, which is why I need you. I need you to go and check on these guys because I think they're up to something illegal. And I want you to find out for me if this is so. Uh, I can't just ask them and I can't go there myself. So if you could go and find out and let me know. And these were two guys, Chapo and Hubiak, two monks, quote unquote monks, um, who operated a chapel of, of a sort in Jamaica, Queens, above a, uh, above a uh, topless bar. So you had to go you know, upstairs around the topless bar and up to this operation they had up there. And the illegal things that they were doing, they were stealing books. They were stealing rare books from university libraries, like Yale University was probably more prominent. But private collections, university libraries, regular libraries, whoever had an antique or rare book section, they were there because they were monks, they were dressed in robes and the whole thing. They pretty much got carte blanche to go in there and they would come out with books hidden in their robes and steal them and sell them on the black market or sell them to you know, middlemen who sold them to legitimate buyers. In some cases, and this really pissed me off, they would have a, a beautiful book of, of maps or illustrations. They would cut out the maps or the illustrations and sell them separately. Oh. To a bibliophile, this is insane. This is the worst sin you can imagine. But they were doing that. And as I became friendly with them and et cetera, I got involved with them. They showed me the equipment. They had equipment to steam out um, library seals, steal out ink marks, do all of this to make the books pristine and then resell them. And that's what they were doing. For monks, this is monks. Yeah, yeah monks. Like I, I put that monk in quotes. <laughs> that term monk. Um, so I go back and I tell William Prosky, my friend, I said, this is what's going on here. He says, that's what I thought. And he goes and shows me a room. He has all of these occult books, all rare editions of mostly European occult texts, famous books in some cases, right? Books on every kind of subject because he was being essentially bought off by these monks to look the other way, oh. right? So they would gift him these books. And I'm looking at this stuff and I'm saying, oh my God, you know? And he says, look how great this stuff is. I said, yeah, but you know what they're doing, right? And then he leads me to this other section. He's got boxes of manuscripts. They would steal manuscripts, right? Nobody would really pay attention to them very much. They were in gray boxes, I'll never forget, but with little metal corners on them, very sturdy looking boxes. And you would open them up and you would see piles of, of manuscripts. Sometimes there were books in very bad bindings, but other times there were just loose papers. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what, have you, what do you have here? And one of them looked really cool. It had, you know, magical symbols and stuff in it. And I said, let me borrow this, right? Since I did this favor for you and I went there and, okay, I'll, let me borrow it. Was this one of the ones that was stolen? And he says, I don't know, this, they gave it to me. So I said, well, I, I probably think it might be stolen because I don't see them buying any of this stuff, you know, or coming into it any, by any legal means. So I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm looking at it and, and you know, it's, it's, in, it's in Greek, 
but there's the symbols I can learn. I know some of Greek because of the Orthodox stuff, the Kyrillic alphabet, the Russian alphabet, the Greek alphabet, there's similarities. And I studied Greek because of occultism. So there were Greek texts that are very famous. So I'm looking at all of this and I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty interesting, you know. And the Warlock Shop had just opened in 1972 in Brooklyn Heights. And I lived in Brooklyn Heights, like a block away. The Warlock Shop became Magical Child later. So I was friendly with Herman Slater, the owner, and I said, you know, I saw all these really great rare books. My friend has them up in the Bronx. I said, I don't think we're going to be able to hold on to them very much longer because they're, you know, it looks like there's some some problem with their provenance. And uh, he says, well, like like what? What do you have? What do you see? And I said, I remember all the names, but there's this one, there's that one, there's a, there's a key of Solomon, and the others. Okay, this kind of stuff is going on. And then I mentioned this manuscript. And he says, what is the name again? And I'm trying to give this Greek pronunciation, right? And it says, it looks like necronomikos, right? And he, I say, if I remember correctly, and he says, wait a minute. He says, that can't be right. You must be, you know, you're full of shit, basically, he told me. And I said, why, what? He says, don't you read Lovecraft? And I said, no. I said, I don't really read a lot of occult fiction. I read a lot of occultism, but not a lot of like science fiction, fantasy and occult fiction. I never read any of that stuff. And he says, that's, that's got to be the Necronomicon. And I said, what is the Necronomicon? And he tells me this whole story. It's this famous book that everybody's been searching for. And I said, I don't think it's that, you know. He says, anyway, translate it, right? See, let me see it. Let me have it. Let, we translate, we do something with it. You, this could be the find of the century. I said, okay, all right. So I go back to, to Prosky and I said, I'm going to hold on to this a little bit while longer. I got to give it to somebody who can read Greek well enough to understand that because there's some stuff in here I don't understand. There's passages that don't make any sense in any language that I've ever seen, you know, so um, it may be nothing, but I want to take a look. I'm not telling him Necronomicon Lovecraft because then he'll want it back and, you know, it's a good thing I didn't, as it turned out. Um, so one thing leads to another is I, I give it to a, a friend who can understand these things better than I can. And uh, the monks get busted. They're arrested by the feds. The feds, make, the feds, the feds got them. The feds got them. And they are the front page of all the newspapers. Their largest rare book heist in the history of the United States. These two wow. guys pulled up. And they said the inventory was enormous. They, they arrested these guys. I know some of the backstory of how they got arrested. Um, there was another monk involved, another priest, a very dubious background, who spent a lot of time flying into Vietnam for some reason. Um, but he was a, a father, a priest of various churches who had a wife and son in the Bronx near Fordham Road. I don't know. It was all very mysterious. <laughs> but they had fought over a woman. Or, it was a really weird story, but he, you know, he, he pretended to be introducing them to a buyer and they were busted with oh. you know, the goods right there. And then the whole thing fell apart and they went to prison. They were convicted and sent to a prison in Connecticut, to federal prison there. Prosky, my friend then, when they're arrested, because he's like kind of moving along thinking he can get away. Once they got arrested, he freaked out completely. He told he was he realized he suddenly had all this contraband. And instead of just like giving it away, getting rid of it, burying it, something, anything, he burned oh, no. all of these books. He, he, he loved these porcelain stoves. He was like a real strange guy. He had strange obsessions. And one of them was porcelain stoves, like you would find in Europe during, you know, 
the 18th, 19th century, these beautiful, you know, porcelain, cast iron things. And he had them and he would just start burning the books in there, you know. I, I wasn't there when he did it or else I would have freaked out myself and told him not to. But he burned that and he burned the book that we had been translating. He burned everything. Everything was contraband. Everything had to be destroyed. He didn't want anything anywhere. He didn't want to go to jail. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. As it turned out, that didn't help him much. He didn't go to jail. Um, but uh, he was killed um, about 10 years later. Um, this whole story is just replete with weirdness and I don't know how much time you have left, um, but we're good. We're good. Please go on. Yeah. We're good. Okay. Yeah. Prosky had been a, uh, we had created our church. Then we got it sort of adopted by this church that had these Kennedy assassination co-conspirators as priests and bishops. Um, so there was that. And then uh, he made contact with another bishop who was a legitimate bishop from the Ukrainian Orthodox church, something which is a little newsworthy these days, I guess. This was the Ukrainian Orthodox Bishop, very well known, the head of one branch of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, who then made my friend Prosky a bishop in his church. <laughs> um, so everything is fine, going along fine, until that guy dies and Ukraine is suddenly free because the Soviet Union falls. The death of that bishop meant that my friend, my high school friend, was now the head of that Ukrainian Orthodox denomination. He took over. Wow. And the Ukrainians weren't going to have that. And there was a big meeting of the Ukrainian church in New Jersey one night. And on that same night, my friend Prosky uh, wound up poisoned with arsenic in his home in the Bronx. And they claim it was kind of an accident because he was gold plating something and arsenic is used in the process, but he was very experienced at this. And he had a pet cat. And the cat did not die from any arsenic fumes, only Prosky did. So there was some, a lot of questions about that, but they buried that story. Uh, you can't really find much about it anywhere, but it, if, you, if you keep looking for Prosky's name, you will eventually find bits and pieces of it, but never the whole story, except from, from me, because I got it from the people who were around at the time. Right. So that was, you know, a thing. So he, this kind of thing followed him around. You know, he was always involved in something a little questionable, something dangerous, something on the edge. Um, and he was a talented person because he spoke different languages. He spoke Czech and Slovak as well as English because of his parents were both emigres from Czechoslovakia. Um, he learned enough Ukrainian to pass there. He learned Greek to function in a Greek Orthodox capacity as well. So he was, he was really talented this way, but on a personal level, he was kind of a mess. So, you know, what can I say? But that's the guy we went to. I went to high school with, and we were doing occult rituals in yeah. Co-op City before Co-op City was built, you know, back in in '67 and '68, and trying to conjure spirits and stuff. So that was our our background. So that's why his interest in occultism was there. It was it was pretty firm. So what did uh, Harold say over at uh, the Warlock Shop? When I mean Herman. I mean I'm sorry, Herman. When when, when uh, the document was destroyed. He didn't care because he had the translation. And, and, was that, and that was, and that is the Necronomicon that was released? That's the one that was released. Um, there's a lot of controversy. People who are scholars of Lovecraft say, it's impossible, this cannot be the Lovecraft, the Necronomicon. Lovecraft said it was a hoax and blah, blah, blah. But you know, Necronomicon is a word that, you know, it means book of the dead or the book of the dead names. 
it's a it's a little difficult neologism maybe in Greek, but it does pass muster, and it's it's a legitimate word. And why wouldn't there have been a manuscript with that name? It doesn't mean it was the one Lovecraft was talking about. He could have come across the name. He could have thought it was a cool name to make up or or something. Sure. But it um, that there was a, an occult book with that text doesn't seem that far fetched to me. We may find others, you know, as we as we look at the monasteries at Kate, Saint Catherine of Siena, of uh, Sinai or some of the other. I mean, there's there's books there's book um, repositories all over the world that have not been tapped yet. So we may find more. And what was it in uh, the the big? Uh... What was it? Uh, the had the big book burning that had happened. It was at Constantinople. Oh, the Library of Alexandria. Yeah, that's it. The uh, yeah. Alexa- who, who even knows what was it, what was, was in held there? there. Yeah. yeah, you know the antiquities of man. You know, totally. Sure. You know, amazing. <laughs> well, Peter, you've given me such an interesting uh, podcast, and. Uh, I just have to express my gratitude for you taking time out to come on the show. and My pleasure. And I definitely have to have you on again sometime because there's so many things. Even You just had a lot of questions and we didn't cover. Yes. I warned you. I warned and, you. It was not going to happen. And, and the questions that we had, I have questions on top of those questions. Right. And, okay. and I didn't even get to like, uh, when we were talking about the UFOs, I wanted to talk about Crowley and Lamb and, you know, sure. and, uh, Montauk and things yep. like that all that cool stuff sure yeah but i'm ready before i do let you go what are you working on now and is there anything that you're particularly excited to let my audience to look forward to well i'm working on a number of things one we're trying to get secret machines volume three released um that's going to be up to tom DeLong as it has been since the beginning we're going back and forth in that. And we have other projects working with Tom as well, which he will announce, I guess, when he's ready. Um, in addition to that, um, I'm personally working on a couple of projects that I have been for a while. One is uh, a real a text about Kabbalah, um, but it's not a beginner's text on Kabbalah. It's something a little deeper that's going to focus on um, it's going to focus on on something that's very um, important to many people in the Crowley world, uh, which is the, the idea of crossing an abyss. But more than that, it's an actual, how shall I put it, a deconstruction of what that means, of the abyss and da'at, the, 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 the sephira in, in between the three supernals. And the and process clearly, of becoming an adept? is Yeah, is... yeah, there is that. And there's also, like I say, a deconstruction of da'at. What does that really mean? Uh, why don't we hear it in the earlier Kabbalistic texts? Why does it suddenly appear much later? And what is the the what is the import of that? Did the Golden Dawn get it wrong? Did did Crowley somehow get it wrong? If that's possible to say that he got it wrong, or just has a different angle on it? I want to talk about it from a purely Kabbalistic sense in terms of Jewish Kabbalah, and then the Hermetic Kabbalah, you know, uh, occult Kabbalah, let's say, approach to it. I've been working on that most recently. I hope I'll get that out soon. Uh, and another text I'm working on is going to be a lot more controversial. Um, I'm sort of tackling the idea of the new aeon. Like, really, what is the new aeon? Because we use that term a lot, and people in the Crowley camp use the term a lot to mean something specific. But when you try to nail them down, it gets very vague. Um, I have very specific ideas about what that should be or what it is or what's actually taking place 
and I would like to get that out, but it's going to be a little difficult and controversial for people. There's going to be some philosophy in there which might bother people, and uh, some maybe references to French people, which is going to make drive the cultists insane in the United States, but still it's necessary. So there's some of that going on, plus a lot of the a lot of references to the Gnostic Mass and what does that really mean? What is really going on with the Gnostic Mass? Uh, Jim Wasserman, who was a friend of mine for many years, who passed away a few years ago, uh, we had many disagreements. We had disagreements on politics, we had disagreements on Philema and on, on Crowley. We had a lot of disagreements, let's put it that way. We knew each other well, but we had we fought all the time. <laughs> and um, one of the things that uh, I really disagreed with him a, a lot about was the Gnostic Mass, what it really means uh, and what it really portends and what the role of the Gnostic Mass is and the OTO in general. So it's going to be, like I say, a little difficult um, for some people to read, maybe. And maybe not everybody will uh, be a fan. <laughs> no. No, but but the Thelemites, the Thelemites have not been a fan of my Thelemite works. Let's let's be blunt. The they're, Dark they're, Lord was they're, not. They're hardly fans of anybody who contributes uh, in, in that realm. From outside, yeah, they're so. gatekeepers, and they want to make sure that you have to be, you know, on their side of the gate before you can write. And that's true. I mean, on, on the other side of the pond, also, I think that the Kenneth Grant people also have a certain a bit of gatekeeping on their side. Or, or an aversion to anything that doesn't come from within their 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 milieu. So, but I don't care. I mean, I'm that's one of the reasons I haven't taken oaths to any order, so that I can write what I want to write and research what I want and say what I want. So, the Dark Lord was received with you know the, 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 the Caliphate people didn't like it and the Kenneth Grant people didn't like it, but some people in the middle liked it, you know, because it did explain a bit of Grant, I think, and the relationship Crowley Grant and Lovecraft. And there's going to be a bit of that in the book I'm doing on uh, the new Aeon and the Gnostic Mass. That is one big, one big subject. So awesome. We'll see. So It'll definitely lots of. And uh, how about some more uh, TV appearances? Anything uh, coming up that we should know about? I don't know. There's a couple of things in the works, actually. Um, there are certain uh, there's certain uh, possibilities, but the the strikes in Hollywood kind of slowed everything down. Yes. So as far as scripted stuff, and as far as that kind of thing, everything just came to a stop. And it still is kind of at a stop, or I guess it's still trying to come back. So I'll know more about that when, when everything is cleared up in, in, uh, in Hollywood, because they have a lot of control over the, the kind of cable shows that you know I've been on and things of that nature. So it's all connected, and i got to wait until that settles down. And do you have a website or anywhere we can go to track your goings on, or do you have a substack that you... I have a substack. For sure. Um, in fact, a lot of the stories that I'm telling, some of them appear in truncated form or sometimes more elaborate form on the Substack. I think it's just peterlavenda.substack. Great, uh, great. .com. great. Uh, you can get it that way. Uh, my own website is still under construction. I had one for a while. It kind of disappeared. Uh, so now I'm trying to bring it back. And uh, there's so much extra stuff to put on it that it's becoming unwieldy. I so bet I'm it trying, is. I'm, sure I'm trying it to is. narrow it down a little, something manageable. So yeah, I'm still at it, still working. Awesome. Peter, thank you so much for being on Magister Dixit. I look forward to talking to you again. Likewise. Thank you very much. And take care. Yeah.